A government-funded UK trial is looking at mixing and matching different vaccines in the nation's bid to stay ahead of the pack in inoculations. Meanwhile, though, there's a worrying new strain of patriotism developing in the nations faring best on this front. We'll mull over the mutation and gauge those getting it right in the politics of a pandemic. Next, as Myanmar reels from Monday's military coup, we'll assess the latest, plus delve into the trumped-up charges that landed its democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, behind bars. Last up, we're led on a merry jig, then down the garden path and back by our inimitable New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories and more today on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 5th of February and doesn't it feel like it? I'm Josh Fennett. Joining me today are Monocle's fearless leader and editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and nestled in his far-flung North London lair, snug in a pillow fort, it's Tom Edwards, head of Monocle 24 Radio. Tom, uh, it's been a busy week and I'm going to start with you. How likely, would you say, is your bedroom garrison to be stormed by the barbarian hordes of children that also live with you while we're recording? I'd say there's a sporting chance of that happening. Um, the smaller one is having his, uh, he's having little rest, so he might be out of commission. But the older one, who has not the real eye for mayhem, eh, he may hear me talking. So, yeah, just let's, let, let, let's press on and hopefully avoid, avoid that, uh, that invasion if we can. Let's see what happens. Um, Andrew, I'm sure our listeners, especially those who found themselves uh, fondly enjoying a few minutes with you in bed of a Saturday morning, are intrigued <laughs> to hear the topic of your weekend column. What's on your mind this fine Friday evening? As long as it's fondly and not fondling, I don't, I don't mind if they're there in, in bed with me. Um, tomorrow, what do we have to look forward to? Um, talking about Timber Towers... Everyone seems to love a timber tower, so that's a good reason to write a column with a slightly kind of um, an attempt to kind of tilt at the towers a little bit. Just say, just because it's made of wood doesn't always mean it's good. I'm I'm talking in rhymes today. I like it. I'm not sure what's happening there. And um, a little thing which connects with some of the stories that we're doing today, which is about how don't judge what people think until the moment arrives. For vaccines, for example, we don't judge what we think of Boris Johnson or the, the British government because it all all has changed because of the vaccines. We we're talking this week to our colleague in Tokyo. Don't don't judge that everyone's opposed to the Olympics until you get a bit nearer, and then let's see what people really think. So, it's all about patience this week. Well, we're going to be touching on a couple of those topics actually today, fortuitously enough. But first on the show, we're going to discuss the global coronavirus vaccine rollout. The UK has set up a trial to test the efficacy of giving people different vaccines from different makers. Let's have a listen to Monocle 24's health and science correspondent, Dr. Chris Smith, who gave his opinion on the idea. He was speaking earlier today on The Globalist. We have got the, the the background knowledge that you can do this. We have done this many times in, in the history of virology across a range of different virus types and, and other infections, and it does seem to work pretty well. So most people I've been speaking to, and my own instincts tell me that it will be actually a very good strategy. It's not just a kind of a save the day, I can't get two doses of, of X, I'll have to do this. It's actually a very good strategy to make an even better immune response. Well, good news from Dr. Chris Smith there speaking on The Globalist. I'll come to our panellists in just a second. But as the nation aims to hatch a plan um, about how to vaccinate people, I wanted to talk about the thorny issue of vaccine nationalism. Um, 
Andrew, how likely is bragging about how well you're doing likely to enhance a country's image at home and abroad? Or is the UK doing the right thing by being a bit innovative with first doses, with mixing vaccines, with offering to um, help other people and use its scientific nous to, uh, to, to get everyone moving? Well, I've said here before that, you know, I, like many, you have to say, kind of hands up to the British government in many ways. They have you know, done very well at their procurement. You know, we see in, in France where there was a slowness to act, where there was a dependency on the European Medicines Agency acting on their behalf to kind of secure deals. What the repercussions of that have been, and even just today we've, we've had Ursula von der Leyen saying, you have to think of the European Union as a, a giant tanker, and as Britain as a little speedboat, which I think was said in the hope of being a bit dismissive, but in fact is exactly what you need in these circumstances. The UK has been nimble, it's bet, it's 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 paid up front. So you're even seeing like French pharmaceutical companies who couldn't find partners at home to uh, produce their potential vaccines, now they're going to be produced here in the UK. So the UK is in a very strong position. But the the UK is also being very careful because it, it doesn't, the government certainly doesn't want to boast. It wants to appear magnanimous because the risk of boasting too much is that you will get the hackles up of other countries who will stop their exports, who will make it very difficult for you to continue at the pace that you already have. And there is also, there is going to have to be some generosity. So we are going to have to offer vaccines to other countries. We are going to have to support more developing nations as well, because there's no point, you know, everyone thinking they can be New Zealand. You know, we're an interconnected world, especially here in Europe. We need to help each other. And as borders open up and people can flow across them safely, that's the thing that we need. So, yes, there is nationalism. And just the last tiny thing is it has been... uh, you know, interesting to watch Macron because it, because he's in a very difficult position. Normally, he's above the fray and rather grand. He, he's he's he seems a little put out, to put it mildly. And I think the French think that as well. He just doesn't look in a, a good position on this. So nationalism at play on his side has become quite a negative thing. It's been taking swipes at the UK, supposedly the risks we're taking, but I don't believe it. Yeah, I completely agree. I was very surprised to hear Emmanuel Macron, French president, taking a swipe at uh, an an unfounded swipe, we should say, at the efficacy of the UK-developed AstraZeneca drug. Um, The same with the German health minister. Um, Tom, we're going to turn to matters domestic a little bit. We we know the UK government has been fairly diplomatic in its dealings so far. But this week, uh, the Times of London broke a story about a plan from the opposition Labour Party to boost its image with voters by being a little bit more patriotic. Some of the things that Andrew said might be a little bit unhelpful in these times. Do you think flag waving and tea drinking and uh, an, an older idea of Britishness is going to help us with a, a global problem like the pandemic? Well, no, to, to, to be frank, um, Josh, absolutely not. And I think we've seen in this country um, in a very sort of immediate uh, way exactly where indulging in any kind of jingoism gets you and I, and I sort of refer back over the sort of five year horror show that was the the slow motion car wreck of, of Brexit of course and I think that the it, it's difficult for any party in opposition during a, a moment like a pandemic like a lot of these um, true global uh, challenges it's very difficult to take the government to task and yet not sound like you're you know not on board for the effort. You know, we know everyone has to rally around. There's a tremendous social impact 
um, that's been felt already and will be felt for years to come. So it's hard for parties of opposition to represent a, a, a rigorous um, and you know a, aggressive a front of, of holding government to account whilst at the same time you know still saying look we're, we're kind of on board with the effort and we encourage people to to do likewise and i think we're focusing down zeroing in on these sort of quaint very very 20th century sort of british traits and tropes is is, is frankly rather a rather a diversion and i think they'd be better served by just sticking to their sticking to their guns, and I think you know there are ways. And I know we spoke about this last week, and Andrew alluded to it that the government, certainly with the vaccine rollout, may have almost stumbled upon a good strategy. That doesn't mean just because it's a good outcome that you can't take them to task for the way that that, that we got there. And I don't think the the public would have an issue with that. So I think more focus on the substance and a little bit less on on some of the kind of uh, semantics. I agree. And um, Tom talked there, Andrew, about hitting a balance between being positive about what's going well and the need to kind of wave a flag in people's face and say that we're doing it better than you, which in fairness is quite a a tough line to walk. Um, Listeners in the UK uh, can scarcely have avoided the sad news that the centenarian and NHS fundraiser Captain Sir Tom Moore uh, died this week. But it appears in the midst of the morning, some outlets were, were more keen on maybe memorialising him than than holding the government to account, asking tough questions about the handling of the crisis. Um, why do you think that is? Do we just need a positive story to cling on to? Is this a, a little bit of a moment where we can come together and heal? Or do you think some media outlets are missing an opportunity to hold the government to account? It's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating story, this. And the more I, I've thought about it over recent days, is you know, it's amazing to me how unpacked it's been by all media channels there was a, a, a kind of awful kind of car crash interview on the on, on a bbc show this week where they asked matt hancock the health secretary here in the uk where they would rank um tom moore in 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 amongst doctors and other healthcare workers as though it was like you know on the, the charts that he was going to be like oh he's, he's at number three this week you know dropping to number four next week and the banality of the, the questioning around this. What's fascinating is, you know, that because this is a gentleman who raised some thirty million plus for the National Health Service by walking around his garden on his on his walking frame, he caught the the imagination of the British people. One because it taps into this notion of um, wartime Britain about people being stoical, getting on with it, doing their bit. Uh, two, he he seemed to kind of stand for some kind of old school principles about uh, taking care of yourself and n- not being over dependent and and having a go. It, it, there was everything about him caught the majority of people's um, fascination, and 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 he was clearly a very nice man as well. So uh, let's let's leave that to one side. He did a great thing. But the circumstances of his death were that he went into hospital and caught COVID in a hospital and died. And he is one of over 100,000 people, including many seniors, who again and again and again we have failed to protect from COVID. Now, the amazing thing is that none of that, because it comes back to the vaccine story, because this is, it, it, you cannot underestimate how much it has bulldozed every other story, the numbers game of this vaccine. 10 million already done, 10 million plus, 15 million going to be hit by mid-February. It meant that the government could come out and say, Boris said we should clap for Captain Tom tonight. Great. The system had just kind of killed him, 
but there was there was no kind of like reticence about saying oh this is terrible you know we we must investigate how he he caught covid it was like we own this story now he 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 is ours you know Keir Starmer certainly didn't dare raise a voice to say on the opposition uh, can we ask about the circumstances it was it was all it was all pushed to one side even the hospital where he had probably contracted it and died they felt you know certainly emboldened enough to go and stand on the steps and and clap for what they'd done for him now they'd probably done an amazing job he had pneumonia before he was going into hospital he's a, a centenarian you know of course it's tough sorry i know this is a long answer but my god you know why did he have to raise the money in the first place for a national health service that was kind of cash-strapped, that didn't have the things it needed? Why was this man put into a position where he then contracted COVID and died? No one's talking about that. Everyone's talking about make a statue, put him put him on a plinth, as, as though that, that is the end of a jolly story. It isn't a, a completely jolly story, but nobody has the appetite for it. Everyone just wants to say... We're, we're marching on. It's nearly done. We need to move on. We ran a little bit long on that topic, but I think it was all uh, very worth discussing and will be unpacked, of course, across Monocle 24 over the coming weeks. But next up on the show, we're heading to Myanmar. This week, a military coup unseated the Southeast Asian nation's democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and the events in Napier are deeply concerning for democracy in the region. But I wanted to pick up on a certain aspect of this story, um, the military's case against the nation's deposed leader. The stated reason for detaining her was actually rather flimsy. Uh, it was for the import of, quote, at least 10 walkie-talkies, close quote. Um, and also, as we look to Russia, the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has been sentenced to several years in prison for violating the terms of his parole Again, risibly, most of which were spent in a coma in Germany after he was poisoned using uh, military-grade Novichok. Andrew, um, I wanted to talk, uh, it's a bit of an aside, but I wanted to talk about trumped-up charges because these are both uh, fairly ridiculous uh, overstretches uh, from people who are looking to maintain their position in power. But don't you think these mad charges just tend to fuel the flames of opposition and add to the outrage? I mean, if the person who you believe is the rightful leader of a country is jailed on such terms, you're not giving your organisation, your uh, military hunter, much credibility, are you? Well, that's the very nature of of military hunters. They don't really care about global credibility. So the game will have changed overnight in Birmingham. For a decade, we've seen attempts to bring in uh, money from outside the country to invest there to develop the tourism industry, and you go back to a period which you know a decade ago where people were actively you know, discouraged and didn't go because global organisations said, "Look, this is a country with a terrible record on democracy." That that time was uh, imprisoning uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, and now here we are back in 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 the same spot. There's also something about trumped up charges which which kind of plays almost to the. I don't know the, the humour, but the, the the kind of the intent of the of, of the of the government or the organisation doing it. it, it it shows you how you, you don't have to do something big to end up in trouble. It makes it very clear to anybody who is a follower of Navalny, for example, that you know just going out on the street 
will be enough to get you arrested. And we saw this in you know in Hong Kong when there were the demonstrations, you know the the famous um, umbra- umbrella demonstrations, where you could be arrested for having an umbrella on you, or you could when people called for you to wear a certain color, then suddenly you, in many cities that color becomes banned. It's the most tiny things become seen as as, as something that you can end up in jail for. So that's why it happens. It's because they they, they like the fact that they're taunting you with these very small misdemeanors, supposedly, uh, landing you in jail for many years. And Tom, on the subject of trumped-up charges or kind of accusations, and I suppose it's a bit of an aside, there was a a newspaper article in the UK press this week that accused the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, of um, having a -a tete-a-tete with Boris Johnson after Prime Minister's questions, and it described him, uh, I think, rather humorously as maskless, rattled and puce. Um, which I think is a bit of a uh, which, which is a bit of a funny charge as well. But do you have any uh, trumped up allegations that you're aware of that you'd like to draw attention to? Well, do you know, I was thinking about this, Josh, and, and obviously there are many sort of terrible miscarriages of justice that are not in the least bit funny. But to to, to, to try and capture something that has the, the the farcical quality that, as you as you said with Navalny, you know, charging a man that you've effectively rendered into a coma through a, an assassination attempt with not fulfilling his bail conditions, so preposterous. What I thought of actually was going way, way back, you know, it, to the sort of 50s in the US and, um, you know, Senator... Your Senator, salad days. So, well, indeed. But Senator Joe McCarthy, you know, and the, the House Un-American Activities Commission, which actually sounds like the kind of thing that would have happened under under Donald Trump, but it was a, a solid 70-odd years ago. And these mad, you know, the the, the lunacy of put, putting these kind of Hollywood luminaries, you know, think of these, these, these brilliant screenwriters, your kind of Ring Lardners and Dalton Trumbos, and, and the, the, these guys were accused of subversion completely groundlessly, and then they were they were accused of perjury by Senator Joe and his pals because they you know they wouldn't reveal the communist goings on within the Screen Actors you know it, it was so manifestly out there, and yet you know if you look at the capital that that McCarthy worked with for a few years. Um, I don't know. That that that, that was the, that was the one that sprung to mind. I guess what was good about that, and maybe there's some hope here for, for for Burma, is that it was the likes of you know the journalism of Edward R. Murrow that kind of knocked Joe McCarthy off his off his perch. And you know, maybe now I think it was interesting what Andrew was saying about Burma. You know, over the last kind of ten twenty years, it does seem the the democratic genie, if you likes, out of the bottle. So if we're serious about it for a second. You know, there's probably rigorous journalism. We've seen protests from teachers and other groups. Uh, you know, it, it may not be as easy as the hunter were, were bargaining to 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 keep a to keep that kind of um, f- foot stamped on the on the on the throat of you know, but Burmese people who are hungry to express their democratic uh, rights. Very good points all round. At last up on the show, we're going to hop across the pond to hear from Henry Rees Sheridan. Yes, here our oddball New York correspondent regales us with his internally refracted views on the week that was in the US. In this case, what the tall towers around Central Park really mean. Take it away, Henry. Four three two Park is a super tall residential tower in Manhattan. When it was built, it was the tallest residential tower in the world, but it was soon eclipsed by an even taller one in its vicinity, which has become known as Billionaire's Row. It's difficult to know exactly who lives in the towers of Billionaire's Row. Many of them hide their identities behind shell companies. What's for certain is that These are people for whom nothing but a home in the tallest and most expensive towers in the world will do. 
This week, correspondence between some of the residents of 432 Park has emerged, revealing that beneath its shiny exterior, the building is beset with structural engineering issues. The walls creak, the elevators break down frequently. In 2018, 432 Park suffered two floods. One of the residents claims the first one caused water to seep into her apartment, causing an estimated $500,000 in damage. Both of the floods began on so-called mechanical floors. These floors don't contain apartments. Instead, they're filled with engineering and structural equipment. Fully a quarter of 432 Park's floors are mechanical floors. This is because the building's developers took advantage of a loophole in NYC's zoning laws by which floors reserved for structural and mechanical equipment don't count against a building's maximum size. By creating so many mechanical floors, the developers were able to make 432 Park much higher than they would have been allowed to otherwise. The towers of Billionaire's Row are made possible only by cutting-edge structural engineering. So you might think that the situation its residents are facing is historically unique. But in fact, it echoes an event from the 12th century. The year is 1184. The place is the Church of St. Peter in the city of Erfurt, in what is now modern-day Germany, but what was then the heart of the Holy Roman Empire. The occasion, a meeting convened by King Henry VI to settle a spat between Conrad I and Ludwig III over land rights. Dozens of noblemen are packed into the church for the negotiations. They've been gorging on feudal tithes all year, each of them stuffed to the gills with appropriated turnips. In addition, many of them are sporting their finest chainmail, adding even more weight to their already robust frames. With proceedings about to begin, Conrad I and King Henry VI retreat into one of the church's alcoves for a discreet tete-a-tete. Suddenly, the din of chatter in the room is interrupted by a thunderous crack. The wooden floor of the church has given way under the weight of the corpulent aristocrats. Henry VI and Conrad I manage to cling on to the iron bars in the window of the alcove they are standing in. Almost everyone else is plunged into the darkness where the floor used to be. And what awaits them there? Let's just say that the cellar into which the noblemen are dumped would probably have been classified as a mechanical floor under contemporary New York City zoning laws because it contains the church's cavernous latrine. If Henry and Conrad looked down from their precarious vantage point, they would have witnessed a scene fit for a Hieronymus Bosch triptych. At least 60 nobles, desperately thrashing in a giant vat of poo-poo and pee-pee, dragging each other beneath the surface of the slurry in a futile struggle to escape. According to an extremely reliable historical account of the event, there was almost certainly a band present playing atmospheric music. The musicians would have been in a special acoustic chamber separate from the main room in which the nobles had gathered and so protected from the floor collapse. They were also under strict instructions to play on no matter what. 
And so as the horror unfolded, it was probably to a soundtrack that went a little something like this. The early music consort of London there, playing a tune that was composed in the olden days, approximately the same historical period in which the Urfit latrine disaster unfolded. Between 60 and 100 noblemen drowned in their own excreta that day. Henry VI and Conrad I managed to keep hold of the window bars and were eventually rescued. Henry would go on to become a Holy Roman Emperor only a few years later. I take no pleasure in recounting the tragedy of the Earth at Latrine disaster. I do so only to illustrate the fact that the bursting of the pipes at 432 Park isn't the first time the super-rich have been led by their own status games to convene in a building with a structurally unsound mechanical floor and, as a result, faced a less-than-ideal plumbing scenario. In order to properly recognise the important historical parallels between these two events, I propose that the two floors in which the floods at 432 Park originated be renamed, respectively, the Henry VI and Conrad I memorial floors. May their triumph over adversity inspire the residents of Billionaires Row in these dark times. That was Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan rattling off his thoughts on New York's needle-thin towers on Billionaire's Row. Sadly, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to Andrew Tuck, uh, looking very smart here in the studio, and Tom Edwards at home in his jimmy jammies. Uh, thanks to our studio managers, Louis Allen and Sam Impey, and our producer in Milan, Ed Stocker. You've been very patient, Ed. Thank you. Uh, from me, Josh Fenner, and the whole Monocle team, have a great Friday and a wonderful weekend. Music.